<laughs> so, Alan, we're going to continue on our discussion about Bhikkhu Gurudasa's book on um, uh, Anapanasati for um, enthusiastic beginners. <laughs> yes, that's right. So, in the last uh, the last session that we had. Uh, we had we had talked about um, the first tetrad and the second tetrad, and um, you know, sort of summarizing them and and um, talking a bit in a in a broad way about those tetrads. And so um, now um, we'll continue on. We'll talk a little bit about the third and fourth. And then from there, begin to talk through the 16 trainings uh, mm -hmm. one by one and, and kind of go through in a, a very, you know, pragmatic meditation instructions uh, that he gives. And, and we can kind of talk about that. And, um, and Okay. And so, okay, okay. So uh, we had talked about how the first Tetrad... Uh, was based around the kaya, the body. The body, yeah. And um, and he sort of makes the distinction between the flesh body and the body of breath. Right. And um, they interrelate. And then the second tetrad uh, relates to the thedana. Um, and. Uh, and the feelings. Mm -hmm. And then now, uh, he says, we practice in order to know the secrets of the sita, the mind. Okay. He says, is the director and leader of life. And so he had said, uh, you know, he had talked about the Vedana in very interesting ways, you know, saying that uh, they have the greatest power and influence over over human beings, over all living creatures. Uh, but the Sita, he said, is the, the director and leader of life. Uh, what we call the mind is very subtle, complex, and profound. It is possible to know the Sita through its thoughts. Um, but in the end, it says that the mind can be controlled. Okay, that's interesting. Let me see if I can uh, clarify that with an analogy. And I uh, perhaps will be able to do it with just a few words so that you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And the, and the term is backseat driver. <laughs> yes, yes. So the Vedana is the backseat driver and the Sita is the actual driver. Mm. <laughs> okay. Does that make sense for you? Does that help clear stuff up? It does, yes. And, and if you have an insistent enough backseat driver, they can pretty much control the driver. But the driver controls the car. Right, yeah. In the end, it's up to the driver. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I, I like that. Which means that the driver 
with a little bit of strength or gumption can actually stop listening to the backseat driver. Mm-hmm. That's possible. Hmm. It's also possible for the backseat driver to stop chattering and enjoy the ride. <laughs> yeah, it says the it can be stilled, calmed, concentrated in different ways and to different degrees. Finally, the mind can be liberated. You can direct our mind to let go of things it loves or hates or to which it is attached. The mind is liberated from all those things. Yes. He's actually following quite along with the Anapanasati Sutta in that statement there. And that, in fact, what he's uh, actually referring to there is state or uh, step eight of Anapanasati, which is still inside of the Vedana, but it is the last of them. And and in the uh, the Pali, it would be translated as the uh, the mental conditioner that our feelings condition our thoughts, and we can see that in several <clears throat> really really big and profound ways. I've got several examples of some spectacular times when uh, the feelings um, manage and control the thoughts. An example of that would be in a debating society. The, uh, the debating uh, system has a rule about no ad hominem attacks. In fact, the word ad hominem comes from the debating society, okay? And what the ad hominem attack means is, is that you can attack your debate opponent's position, but you can't attack him personally right why not (laughs) why not you know the wwe (laughs) yeah yes that's their primary thing is to get with the microphone and scream and yell and attack the opponent himself and how bad a human being he is before (laughs) the fight now, yeah. in the WWE, this is all arranged in advance, and everybody knows that this is a game that's being played, but the audience doesn't. Mm. At least the audience that will b- go to both the WWE and go to who uh, to CPAC. These <laughs> are the people that don't have a clue about the fact that everything has already been arranged in advance. But in a real contest, another example is uh, the 1972 uh, World Chess Championship. There was a, um, a very, very excellent, I lived through this. I mean, I, it was big time. So don't be impressed that I know the names of all of this. This is just part of my history. Okay, Boris Spassky was a well-known world-class chess champion. And that he had a, 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 the actual contest, which I think was in New York. And that Bobby Fischer was an American, and he was pretty good at chess. But Bobby Fischer won that chess championship because he could get Boris Spassky to make mistakes or not do the kind of brilliant moves that Boris Spassky was known for. How did uh, Bobby Fischer do that? He did it by playing psychological games. 
one of the games that he would play is is that in chess, if you touch a piece, you have to move it. Uh, Bobby Fisher would put his hand over a piece and hover over it, giving everybody in the audience, including the judges and uh, Boris Basky, the idea he was going to move that piece. And he would do that intentionally so that Boris Basky would be plotting and planning all of the stuff that he was going to do, depending on where that place, piece was moved. And then uh, Bobby Fisher would move another piece because he really didn't touch that one, so he doesn't have to move it. But then after his move, when it was Spassky's turn to move, Bobby Fisher would get up out of his chair and wander around the stage, and sometimes he would come and hover over uh, Spassky's shoulder, which was not actually against the rule, but it was very disconcerting. That's exactly, by the way, what um, uh, Donald Trump did with Hillary Clinton in their debates, that he would hover around her and distract her okay this is exactly what we're talking about is the backseat driver okay this was boris Spassky's move and this was um hillary clinton's speech but they both had a backseat driver in reality all right they had they both really had a backseat driver there now coming to um the issue of our own individual self our own feelings then will condition our own mind. So if someone can get us angry, then that angry and all of the bodily um, components of anger basically is to get the body ready for fight or flight. You can't fly with your feet, with, uh, you can flight, you can take flight with your feet, you can run away, but you can't take flight with your mind very easily when it's an actual dangerous situation. Okay, this is the whole idea then is is that the mind is conditioned by the feelings and the feelings are the feelings of danger. If you feel afraid, it's going to condition your thoughts. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what Bhikkhu Buddhadasa is getting at. So I've just given you several examples of that, but now you can see that it's all over the place. That is, there's really a thought that we have that's not conditioned by our feelings. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, it's almost like in our culture, there's this idea that, in a way, our emotions are, are uh, should be driving, you know? Like, they, they are what, you know, make us human. They are... Uh, you know, what make life meaningful. And so, you know, the, in that you, case, I don't want to have meaning in life and I don't want to be human. <laughs> it, yeah, it's it, you see in a particularly in po popular culture, right? This critique of of uh, the mind being the driver. It's always being critiqued, you know, so you have the figure of the scientist. Uh, who who goes off the rails because they're too hyper rationalistic or um, thinking of the show Doctor Who? You know they have this these these characters called the Cybermen, uh, who are basically uh, people who uh, took away their emotions, you know, um, to make themselves you know a higher life form, and of course they became totally evil. 
uh, at this wow. point because then they become pure mind. And so it's interesting, you know, uh, but that here it's reversed, you know, it's the emotions that we really got to be watching out for. And we have to be uh, putting the mind in the driver's seat is what he's saying. Precisely. Established. You know, the Vedana, should they stay in the back seat, but they should be quiet and, um, and, and not give directions. Okay. <laughs> now, how do we get that to come about? That's a major question. Right. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, we're going to, we're going to get to that when we get to the third tetrad. All right. Direct. Okay. We can. So we'll continuing along, we'll let flight. you run this show. You're the driver. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's summarize the fourth tetrad here. Um, and then we can get to the, to the practice stuff. So the fourth, uh, he says, Dhamma is nature and all its meanings. So he said, having learned the secrets of the body, the feelings, and the mind, we come to the fourth stage, which concerns Dhamma. Mm -hmm. In this stage, we take the ultimate truth of all natures as the object of our study. We need to study One this. One at a time. All together at the same time is a bit much for a poor human being. Yeah. Not even supercomputers. In yeah. fact, the magic is, is that there is a giant, giant, huge, super, super giant computer that exists, has been around for a very, very long time and keeps track of everything that everyone does. It's hooked to a giant camera in the sky called God. <laughs> and this uh, uh, super duper supercomputer is called Kama. Kama machine, I call it. The giant comma machine in the sky that keeps track of everything that everybody does. Guess what? You cannot personally keep track of everything you do. Your brain is just not that way. We are yes. not supercomputers. Yeah. <clears throat> and a lot of people want to think so. That's why they suffer a lot is because the reality is, is that humans make a lot of mistakes. We are completely human. <laughs> yeah. But we can get it straightened out so that we can start to pay attention to the dhammas. And to see that every dhamma, every, and when we're using the, the term dhamma here, we're to, using the word dhamma in reference to a pronoun. We could actually change the word dhamma here to the word thing and get most of the meaning out of it. So when the Buddhas or when uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa with uh, Santikara's translation is saying every Dhamma, basically what they're just saying is everything. Everything that can come into the mind mm -hmm. will go out of the mind. Everything mm -hmm. is temporary. Mm -hmm. And that as we get sharp, we can see this um, shift change. That there is always a constant shift change. It's almost like some sort of biological clock. Uh, now, the biological clock, unlike the kind of clocks that humans try to manufacture, 
um, that uh, tell time exactly. In other words, every click of the clock is the same amount of time as the last click of the clock. But the human clock is not like that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it runs a little slower and sometimes it runs a little faster. And you can think of in the sense that if you have to take a mind moment to do something, but it's complicated, that mind moment may last long. But also then the next mind moments may not be so long. But in general, mind moments last about a tenth of a second. And we can actually measure this kind of stuff with reaction or response times. And so uh, one who is skilled at taking these response time tests, the, uh, you can do it on the internet, they've got them there, you can Google it and find out. And the screen will be red, and as soon as they change the screen to a green, you, you click the mouse, and your computer with the software and the uh, web page will then measure that time and, and uh, do it time after time to give you an average. And if you can get it down to about 200, um, that means that you've taken two mind moments. Mm. One to see it change from click from red to green, and then the next mind moment is to click the mouse, and that takes about 200 milliseconds, about two mind moments. Okay, but that's when you're ready for it. Yeah, right. Yeah, <clears throat> that means it is um, uh, down at the bare minimum. It's because you're anticipating it, you're waiting for it, you're ready for that thing to turn green, and then you press it. It still takes you 200 milliseconds which is a fifth of a second, about two mind moments. Now, why is this important? Is because basically what that means is, is that things are happening for people normally at a rate that they can't keep track of. We don't know that things are happening that fast until we start to study and look at it. Yeah. And this is what this Dhamma uh, Nupassana is really about, is to begin to see not the mind and the condition of the mind and how it's conditioned by feelings, but we're talking about the actual instantaneous moment-by-moment -moment operation of the mind. Mm -hmm. And that what will uh, end that operation is the end of it, which is relinquishment. That's why it goes from uh, a Nietzsche down to uh, uh, fading into cessation, into relinquishment, that every thought goes through that sequence. It arises, it starts to drift away, it passes, we finish it, we go on to the next thing. But a mind moment will last and last and last if we cling to it and we won't let it go. An example of that is confusion, that people will walk down and they'll just go blank. That mind moment can last two or three seconds because there's nothing happening in there. Mm. Mm. The people always, uh, let us say, under uh, tremendous pressure, like they're on the witness stand in court, and the, uh, uh, the judge or the lawyer asks them a question, they just go blank, and everybody in the room knows they're blank. And eventually the next mind moment will be, hey, I was blank there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Okay, so these are the kind of mind moments that we need to start waking up to is the when, when are things happening? What is the sequence of events with that? Now, let's look at something to help us understand what the Buddha was really on about by comparing the Satipatthana Sutta with what is in the fourth tetrad of the Anapanasati Sutta, because in 
uh, one way of reference, they look like they're completely different. But in a way, another way, you can say no. What we're actually looking at is the difference between structure and function. In the Anapanasati Sutta, it goes more for the structure of how the mind works, in this, especially in the sense of the thought comes up, it fades away. To where in the Satipatthana Sutta, they're looking more of, well, what are the kinds of things then that, the, that are the mind's objects? Mm-hmm. And so in there, they go through a list. And the list starts off with the hindrances. That's the first thing that people will have in their, in their mind as a content. They'll have hindrances. But as they practice, to see these hindrances and to throw them out, then the next group is actually it is interesting in the way that it's expressed because a lot of people don't get the connection. And that is, is that we come out of the wholesome and then we come into wholesome thoughts. And in the range of the wholesome thoughts are things like the five aggregates, the seven factors of enlightenment, <clears throat> and the four noble truths and the eightfold noble path. Mm-hmm. Now, what this Satipatthana Sutta is pointing out is something that uh, uh, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa uh, knows about a lot. And that is, is that we really want to change the mind from unwholesome thoughts of the hindrances into the wholesome thoughts. Mm-hmm. That we, we relinquish and let go of the unwholesome so that now we can bring new Dhamma thoughts in that are wholesome. And thoughts about the present moment, thoughts about what are happening right now, especially thoughts that are happening right now in relationship to the teachings of the Buddha. In the sense that we now are, are having um, the mind's objects that we're going to um, relish, hold on to, and keep are actually the wholesome thoughts about I am not the body. These are not these feelings that are here are not me. They're just feelings. Mm-hmm. That what I see is not me that's seeing. It's just seeing. I am not the feelings. I am not the body. I am not the perception. I am not my old memory system. And I am not uh, the, the consciousness that is happening in this moment. I'm none of those things. Okay. And that point is made in a number of suttas. In fact, you could go so far as to say that every time the five aggregates are mentioned, they are mentioned in reference to no self. That's the whole point of the teaching of the five aggregates. And you can also see that the five aggregates is nothing but another way of looking at the Satipatthana itself. Mm-hmm. Another way of looking at the Satipatthana, but here instead of looking at mind objects, we're looking at the structure of the mind itself in the sense that there is a perception component, there is a consciousness component, and that there is a uh, sankara or a built-up component. Now, the easy way for any student to understand that is by just looking at some object in your room there. Doesn't matter what it is. It could be a pencil. All right. But the point is, is that when you see that object, you recognize that object. 
It's that recognition process that we're talking about. Because if you had never seen a pencil before, you wouldn't know what we were talking about, and you wouldn't know what that object was if you laid eyes on it. You wouldn't know about sharpening, and you wouldn't know about erasers, you wouldn't know any of the things about that pencil. But you do know all about it, and that knowing all about it is what is called Sankara. That's the built-up stuff from the past. We take that past knowledge and the vision of the pencil, we process that together to come up with that object that I see is a pencil. Okay. Now, on further investigation, you may see something written on that pencil because years ago, uh, pencils were used for advertisements. And so the various local churches would have pencils all over town with the church's name on one of those pencils. Mm -hmm. And also insurance companies were good for pencils and pens and things like this, little advertisements. So now you see that pencil and you see the advertisement or you see the name of that church in there. And now you go to a deeper level of the sand car and you pull up the name of that church. And then you remember that church, you can see what that church building looks like, and you know what that deacon that was in that church was about and how much you hated him, et cetera. <laughs> and you can see all of that stuff comes up with that perception. So once you see that pencil, is as a pencil is one thing, but once you see that a pencil as identified with something, now the identification comes up. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so this is all how the mind works in in the concept of the the perception, and in the Pali, this is called the nama rupa. Basically, what we're doing is we're taking something from the outside world, the pencil itself we saw on the desk, and that we're bringing it in and making it a rupa. Excuse me, we're taking the rupa, the real reality, and re and renaming it pencil. Mm -hmm. Right. That's that process. How do we know it's a pencil? It's because we've seen pencils before. That's the sand card, the old past. Mm -hmm. All right. Guess what? That past has problems. <laughs> it's got problems in many ways. One of the things that has uh, it is, is that when we got information in the first place, we didn't get adequate information. We got inadequate information. For instance, when we got a pencil, we only saw one pencil. That does not give us knowledge of all pencils for all time. Sometimes there's great big pencils. Sometimes there's tiny little pencils. All kinds of different varieties of pencils. But when we get enough different pencils, then we can begin to make these classifications in the mind, and that's all then stored in the Sankara. This is what the Sankara means. It's the sum total of all the stuff that I put together. But when I put things together, I don't put them together very well. Not only that, but in the memory system, things rot over time. We don't remember things quite as well as we did when they first happened. This is why the psychologists refer to as short-term and long-term memories. Okay. An example of that is a key number that you get from uh, on your cell phone when you're using the software and it's a seven or eight digit number and a lot of people cannot remember a seven or eight digit number even for a short moment. So they'll do one, you know, uh, five, five, seven, 
seven like that. Others will do three or four. The question is, can you remember all seven digits so that you can remember them and then type them in without having to look? But this is still short term memory because next week you're not going to remember that seven digit number. Memory rots. That's an important quality to understand that every time that we do process something to get an understanding of it is we're dealing with bad data. We're dealing with bad data when it came in. We're dealing with bad data when it goes when it sits there and rots away over time. And guess what? Now when we drag it out and reapply it to the moment in this, in this moment, we can also have possibility of making mistakes so that we misidentify. We think that that's a pencil when in fact it's not. It's a pen or it's a, um, a fake pencil or a cartoon pencil or something like that. And so now we recognize that, that this Sankara, our memory system, is highly prone to mistakes. Mistakes in the beginning, and mistakes in the middle, and mistakes at the end. When we do that, that means that all oh, that means that we need to recheck and reinvestigate. This is the whole quality of keep looking and keep looking and keep looking because our initial ideas may be faulty. Hmm. Yes, and, and he mentions uh, some of the other secrets uh, to be investigated are the truths of Anicca, knowing that all conditioned things are impermanent and in endless flux. Dukkha, know that all concocted things are inherently unable to satisfy our desires. Anatta, Know that all things are not self. And then there's two that I'm, I'm less familiar with. Is it pronounced sanata? Sunyata. Sunyata. And the other no. one is tatata. Void of selfhood, of I mm -hmm. and mine, and tathata? <laughs> I just said it, tatata. Oh, oh, you're going to have to okay. say that one again. Yes, so the sequence actually um, is Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, Tatata, Sunyata. But it can be the other way around. Anicca, Dukkha. Now, this is actually something of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Most of the people in Buddhism will go Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta and leave it there. But right. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa makes sure that you understand what that means by adding these other two. For instance, Anicca um, is all we really need. That's enough. When we recognize that everything is in a flux, everything is keep changing, that should be enough for us to get them the idea that we should be paying attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And nature is enough of the teaching. Okay. And we can also see that a nature means that if things are changing or temporary, we can look at that in several different methods. One is we can see that everything is in fact a Nietzsche because everything is changing because everything is a wave. Up and down and up and down and up and down. And it doesn't matter what you're talking about. Everything is a wave. Politics is a wave. This party wins, that party wins, okay? Real estate market is a wave. It goes up and down and up and down and up and down. It goes up when you want to buy a house and down when you want to sell it. <laughs> 
And so everything winds up being a wave. Everything is a Nietzsche like that. But then because of that waving quality uh, taking energy, that the wave subsides eventually. Okay, it, and, and it subsides uh, in many different characteristics. One of the ways it subsides is time, and the other one is subsides is distance. And it's very, very difficult for your average Joe Blow Buddhist to understand that the Buddha and Einstein were best friends. <laughs> Why? Because here we're talking about this time and this distance are exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, they fade, things fade with distance and they fade with time, but time is what it takes to move distance. Mm -hmm. That in fact, if you're really interested in Einstein, then we can see that a clock doesn't measure time. Doesn't measure time. There is no clock that measures time. What does clock measure? They measure distance. Mm -hmm. And what is the distance? It's the distance of this wave, up and down. An example of that is the very old style clocks had a pendulum. Right. Here it goes back and forth and back and forth, and it's weighted just exactly right. In fact, many of them have a tiny little thing at the bottom of the, uh, the pendulum so that you can slightly change the weight ratio of it and that's enough to tune uh, the timing to get it correct. But really what the clock is measuring is not measuring time, it's measuring the distance from here to there and from there to there. And it keeps measuring that distance over and over and over again. And humans call that time. Mm -hmm. The same thing happens with the planet Earth going around the sun or sunrise, right? It's measured, there's distance that's being measured, and we call that time. Time doesn't exist, only distance exists. Mm. And yet it's a very interesting concept that we can talk about. The time that it takes for the, uh, the, the rays of the sun to get from the sun to the earth, they say is 94 minutes, 94 seconds, they think. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and we, we think about it in the sense of time, but really all it is is just uh, the photons of light in a wave. That's all there really is going on. The, 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 time, the light itself has no, clue, uh, no understanding of time at all. So this is an, uh, a useful concept when we recognize that there is only change in distance. And that because of the change in distance, this is what changes amplitudes and things like this. And that things fade away over time only because of the distance that has been traveled. So once we have this establishment of the Nietzsche is nothing but uh, um, waveforms, we can recognize that some things are happening pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that the fastest of all, uh, the fastest running wave that could possibly be in the universe is what uh, the Buddha refers to as causality. The cause-effect relationship runs so fast that the human being couldn't possibly see it in operation. 
And we can say, oh, yes, I can. I can see that if I turn the tap on, I can watch the water come out of the faucet and hit the bucket. And so I can see the, uh, the cause effect and the chain reactions. And I can say then, yes, but you only saw it in the sense of um, like someone driving a car from New York to Los Angeles. And all you see is they were in New York and now they're in Los Angeles and that's to change. But think about it this way. Oh no, every tenth of a second inside of that getting into driving that car for that 4,000 miles, there was a whole lot of changes going on in there. Hundreds of trillions of changes that got him from New York to Los Angeles. That the mind is fast. The Buddha says uh, in one of the suttas, the mind, O monks, is fast. It is so fast, I do not even have an analogy for it. That we can literally go to Saturn and back in that tenth of the second. But, but light, that's going to take hours to go to Saturn and back, depending upon the distance between the Earth and Saturn. So, um, when we understand that everything is a cycle, everything, then this is what we mean by the wheel of samsara. Everything is a nature. Everything is constantly changing, constantly, constantly changing. If everything is changing, then that means that it's going to change from one form to another. And some of those form changes are very, very rapid, and others of them are slow because the human being is the one who is slow to recognize the changes. But things are happening at a very rapid pace, which means that what was has changed and is no longer what is. What is now is something different than what was, but we cling to it in the mind as if it were the same thing. In other words, we do not see this constant flux. We don't see the constant flow. And so this is one of the things that Bhikkhu Buddha Das is starting to point is that it's good for us to begin to see that we do not live in a fixed sea. Yeah. That everything around us is in turmoil. Everything around us is in flux. Everything is moving. Mm -hmm. The atmosphere are moving around us, the touch of the cloth, everything is constantly moving. And what that means is that there's a whole lot of new things being born and a whole lot of old things dying out. That's the succession. That's why dukkha comes in. But here dukkha is used in a different way. So there's got two different definitions of dukkha. One, we can see dukkha as dukkha that we know about it in the way we say it as dissatisfaction. But another way of looking at dukkha is, is that anything that is born, anything that comes into existence is going to rot, fall apart, and die. The laptop that I'm on, the laptop that you're on, they're going to die. They may still be functioning 20 years after now, but 20-year-old laptops are unused generally. They're put on the shelf. Their functionality has died. Right? Even if the laptop is still functioning after all of those years, people don't use old laptops. In fact, people are, are joked at. I think that, in fact, Schumer 
recently was on uh, some news broadcast with a flip phone. And boy, did he get a bunch of flack for having a flip phone. Mm. Well, wait a minute. Weren't flip phones still in use in the early 2000s? So his cell phone's not 20 years old yet, maybe. <laughs> but you can see the attitude that we have yeah. is that things die functionally, even, uh, let us say, um, they die usably, but they don't die functionally. They could functionally still exist, but they're still discarded as if they're dead because the functionality that they have is... is uh, uh, been usurped or changed. This is also an interesting point. But the, in, in the important point is, is that anything that can change will change, and it will change sufficiently enough that it is no longer what it used to be. Which means everything dies. Everything grows old, everything gets sick, and everything dies. Everything. And the reason that things get old, get sick, and die is because of that inherent change property is that nothing is stable. And yet humans have the delusion that I am stable. The me, the me that had diapers on was the same me that called, called up a tree when I was six, was the same me that fell out of a tree when I was 14, that was the same me that had a motorbike at 15, that was the same me that got into a crash on a big Harley hog once, that's the same me that was in the hospital. And no, every one of those me's was a different me. And it is my delusion to put those together because in fact, what I'm when I'm saying that it was me is means that I'm not paying attention to the fact that it was not me, not one from the time that I was six years old until now, this body has gone through a number of changes so that there is not one cell, one molecule uh, that's the same. Everything has been changed. So a very simple example of that is my grandfather's hatchet. My grandfather hatchet had a hatchet uh, he had it before I was born, and when he died, it was still in the tool shed. My whole life, that my grandfather had that ha hand axe, that hatchet. Now, during its lifetime, it had four different handles and two heads. But it was the same axe, same, same axe my grandfather had, my axe. And yet everything about that axe was changed. But it was still mine when he changed the, um, uh, the, the first handle. It was still the same axe head, so it's the same axe. Later, when that axe head cracked, he changed the, uh, the axe head and put it on the old handle, so it's still the same axe. You see how the human brain works like that? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. We try to make... I'm reminded of, uh, of the analogy of uh, the ship of Theseus. Have you heard of this one? So the ship of Theseus, uh, it's, it's replaced uh, plank by plank. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the question goes, when they replaced one plank on the ship of Theseus, is it still the ship of Theseus? When they replace two, when they replace three, you know, and then eventually they get to 
uh, you know, all but one. Is it still the ship of Theseus? And then they finally replaced every plank, every every single part. Is it still the ship of Theseus? And at what point did it cease to be the ship of Theseus? And I think the point the answer is, to that is it depends upon one's point of view. Yeah. Some people will say it's no longer the same when that first plank is changed. <laughs> Others will say, well, I've been sailing on this ship and every year we change planks and it's still the same ship, not realizing that by now every plank has been changed, but it's still the same ship. Exactly. You've got it. OK, so this is the delusion of the human being. And part of the reason for that is because we're clinging to that old axe instead of relinquishing it in our mind. Yeah. So that's step 13, 14, 15, and 16. And you can see how uh, the relationship is built upon this Anicca Dukkha Anatta. Now, the, the point is, is that nothing, nowhere in the universe has an existential self or a core. Uh, even an automobile is not an automobile until it is thought of as an automobile because all of the components are put together. This is actually, we're, um, let us say, stepping right up to general systems theory here, mathematical stuff. And in general systems theory, the, uh, um, one of the, the two points about a system is, is that a system is where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You probably heard that before. Mm -hmm. Okay, how can that be? The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Well, you have all of the parts of that car. You've got the engine over here, and you've got the transmission there, and you've got the wheels over here. You've got the inner tubes there, and the tires are there, and here's a bunch of wires and all of that kind of stuff. And you walk out in that mess, and you think you're in a junkyard. But if you put all of those parts together in the way that they were intended to be fit to design, now you have something new. You have transportation. You didn't have transportation when the engine was sitting in the yard. You didn't have transportation when the, uh, when the chassis was leaning against the uh, garage. But when you put all of that stuff together, now you've got something else. Now you've got a transportation vehicle. This is an important quality to understand that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. In, in the, uh, the suttas, it is actually Nargajuna and Melinda. King Melinda is asking this question. And so Nargajuna, with his permission, because they were out on the journey there, uh, to take the chariot that Melinda was riding in, take it apart. Mm. And after the wheels are over here and the axle is there and the basket's here and the, uh, the tongue is there and the horses are standing over there, then Nargajuna asks, okay, where's the chariot? Mm. Because you see, the real chariot, the only chariot that ever existed, existed in the mind of King Melanda. Mm -hmm. And the reason that he had that delusion was because all these constituent component parts came together to give him transportation, and it was the transportation that he thought was the chariot. What good is a chariot without being able to uh, transport the king? Okay, that is the concept of the self. The concept of the self, then, is the added ingredient that is not there 
in any of the constituent components. Yeah. It's only when the five aggregates come together that that the functionality of the human being is there, but then the delusion is is that there is a self called a human being when in fact no, it's just a collection of human components. So there is no more a human being there than there is a car. That's not a car. It's a whole bunch of parts together assembled in such a way so that you have transportation. And what defines the car is the transportation. Mm -hmm. What defines a human is that human quality that we can uh, relate to the transportation of the human in, in the transportation of the mind or whatever. Again, distance. And that, that is anatta. That is anatta. That is anatta, yeah. There is nowhere in the universe that there is anything that holds its own essence. Everything is made up of parts that come and go, and the functionality comes and goes depending upon the relationship of the parts. There is no self anywhere. So, uh, there is a phrase that was very common at Watson Mocha. Uh, in fact, we chanted it. And that goes this way. Uh, um, Sabe Sankara Anatta. Excuse me, Anicca. Sabe Sankara Anicca. Sabe Sankara uh, Dukkha. Sabe Dhamma Anatta. Okay, what does that distinction mean between changing the word from Sankara to Dhamma? Anicca means anything that comes together will be taken apart. Mm -hmm. Any two things that come together will eventually come apart. This is what we mean by compounds. That um, uh, An example of that is there is no such thing as water. What you have is a combination of hydrogen and oxygen. Now, here's the thing that's really interesting is, is that if you take hydrogen and some oxygen and somehow get them together into water, and then you break it back up from into the hydrogen and the oxygen, is the oxygen exactly the same as it was before it went into being water? Or is uh, did the oxygen and the um, hydrogen get separated when one had the other's electron? Mm. We don't know these kind of things. <laughs> That's something that the physicists have never figured out yet, and they don't know how to figure it out because we do know uh, the definition of an electron is such that they're not identifiable amongst each other, that every electron has all the same properties. Therefore, there is no possibility of distinguishing one electron from another. Down at that really, really basic, basic position that I'm talking about, when you go all the way down to the bottom, you can't tell anything. It's only the combination of things that gives them any functionality or meaning. Okay, so what electrons and protons can't do, what protons and electrons can't do as oxygen or they cannot do as hydrogen coming together with hydrogen and oxygen coming together, now that, that uh, new mo molecule can do things that the original two molecules could not do. 
So an example of that would be life itself in a cell. All of those little pieces of molecules inside that cell come together, do not make the cell. What makes the cell is the fact that they work together in a unity or in a harmony to create something new, which is called life. Right? Now that we understand this, we can see the relationship between Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. Because there really is no self in anything. Nothing has an inherent essence. Mm -hmm. Nothing does. Nothing has an inherent essence. There is no self anywhere in the universe. <laughs> and yet Christians are taught that there is something inside. We don't know what it is, but it does survive death, and that's you. And it is so strong and so powerful that not only will survive death, but it'll survive a football game where God and Jesus and the devil are, are playing a game to see which one gets you and takes you home. And that it's and even more it's even more pure and fundamental than the aggregates themselves. Mm-hmm. That even the aggregates themselves each one of them is aggregated down to the point that they, everything becomes electrons and protons and then we can't make any distinguishing there's no distinguishing characteristics anymore then mm. that's an interesting point so in that regard this is what gives rise to the concept of sunyata that everything is empty because everything is empty of a self there is no inherent nature in anything. Which means that everything is empty. Now, how do we apply that in Buddhism for the average meditator is we can recognize that um, any meaning that anything has is, um, let us say, that whole is greater than the sum of the parts concept that the, ob the object itself has no meaning in and of itself is only when it's put into combinations with other things that there is any meaning in there. Mm -hmm. So when you take those things back apart, the meaning is also missing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this, this nebulous thing, like looking back to the car, this nebulous thing called transportation, you can look at the car in the driveway and you don't see the transportation. That's something that has to be uh, understood at a different level. But when we thought, think about me, we don't see that that me is actually the, um, the manifestation of the transportation that the body-mind complex does. But there is no real inherent me in there. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't like the idea because what that puts us back to is you were, each individual one of us is nothing but an electromechanical chemical box. <laughs> That's all we are. <laughs> but that electrochemical mechanical box in combination will generate functionality that it doesn't have with all of those constituent components that were laying, let us say, in a casket or a coffin someplace. And so now we understand that um, that not only is um, the human empty, everything is empty. There is no meaning in anything. 
That coconut tree does not mean coconut until the human adds that quality to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is all conceptualizations then that we have and that we conceptualize meaning. Where in fact things don't, and a lot of people then get really hung up. They think that all oh, meaning is important. What's mm -hmm. the meaning of life? The answer is meaning, life doesn't have any meaning. But a better way of looking at it is, is that your what does your life mean? It means whatever you want it to mean. You're the driver of this this vehicle. That's <laughs> why I actually chose the concept of the backseat driver. Is because now, <clears throat> now that we've got this, this self is driven by the mind, but we have these feelings that it keep nudging and pushing. I want to do this. I want to do that. So even though the car will take the, uh, uh, excuse me, even though the mind will take the body to the store or the driver can take the car to the store, it's the desire for something in that store that caused the driver to actually drive to the store. It's that backseat driver that's the feelings, and that's what gives us the delusion that there is a self. Because a lot of people actually will identify one of the ways, in, in fact, the simplest way of looking at it is people identify with the body as a self. Look at all the industries. Mm. Look at how much business and in our society there is that is based upon the delusion, I am the body. Okay. We have, first off, the one that's easiest to look at is uh, the makeup industry, cosmetics, grooming industry, haircuts, and um, uh, um, um, uh, barbers and salons and beauty salons and all of that. Okay, then we can look at the entire clothing industry. But I am the body. We can look at the sports industry. And then I am the body and we look at the medical industry. Wow, look how many industries are associated with that delusion. I am the body. <laughs> And then I am the feelings is also very strong. But when we begin to recognize I am not the body, Jesus talked about that. He says you cannot change your stature even one inch. And people think that they can, uh, that if they can make the body beautiful, then I am beautiful. And really it's not. It's the paint job that's beautiful. <laughs> it's the lipstick. And the rouge and the curls and the teeth job is all the dentist. <laughs> and so this is how we identify. But in fact, everything is, in fact, empty. There is no meaning to anything. There is no purpose in life. There is nothing other than what you make of it. And basically, it's not even that. It's not life and what you make of it. It's what this happens in this very moment. That's when we go now from sunyata into tatata. Tatata means this present moment, right here, right now. What is the meaning of this moment? The answer is whatever you want to make it. 
because that's uh, because meaning is not a constituent component. It's the result of the other component. So whatever you want to make it, you can make it. So this is an important um, way of you have to understand both the Satipatthana and their dominant and the dominant pasana there and the dominant pasana in the Anapanasati Sutra because they look as if they were done by two complete religions that were completely separated from each other. They won't look like on the surface that they've got anything to do with each other. And yet they're talking about exactly the same thing. But one of them is talking about the process of it, and the other one is talking about, or the function of it, and the other one is talking about the structure of how things actually work. Now, the functionality that we're going to have means is that if that's true, then there is advantage in getting rid of the hindrances, and the hindrances are going to be there is meaning in life, there is this and there is that, and I am and all of those kinds of things. And then there is something that we can do uh, with objects of the mind that are wholesome and pure and, and meet with reality. And that would be uh, what the tatata, what's happening right now. There is also um, uh, a very important sutta to pop in with this, and it's called the Saba Asaba Sutta, where uh, the first part of the sutta is talking about the asava or the uh, impurities. Uh, by the way, the word asava was originally translated as cankers. Canker? Now, can canker, like a huh. sore. Yeah. The word asava actually has in, uh, um, the quality of like pimples or blackheads or uh, impurities that pop up on the skin. And that I have seen people who will go to a dermatologist after years and years of not picking out any of the blackheads, and there they are, their face is just full of stuff. And it's a surprise that people will allow that, because basically what the teaching of the Buddha is, is that when something comes up, we pull it out. We don't need these, uh, these astabas, we don't need these cankers. And that the ones that uh, we're talking about now are the, uh, the astabas, are the cankers of the thoughts that we have that are unwholesome, unappropriate, uh, are not worthy of our um, <clears throat> of our uh, inspection. They're not worthy of um, uh, investigation. And what is that? The things that are unworthy of investigation are such that when we have those thoughts, that things don't improve. They get worse. The things go downhill. And that if we have uh, thoughts that are, are appropriate, are useful, in other words, we're paying wise attention or uh, <clears throat> wise reflection, if we have that, then that wise attention is such that things increase, things become more wholesome. Okay. Now, in this same sutta, though it's rearranged a little bit from the way that I'm talking about it, uh, the things that are unwholesome are mentioned in the sense of what was I in the past? Who was I in the past? What happened in the past? And the next one is what happens in the future? 
what will I be in the future? Where will I go? What will I do? So the past and the future in this uh, sutta is pointed out to be things that are um, unwholesome such that uh, problems can occur. But wise attention is in the sense of this, and it's expressed just like this. This is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is the freedom from suffering. And this is the way or the method or the path to the freedom of suffering. In other words, it's talking about the Four Noble Truths, but you see in, uh, in Western mentality, because of our educational system, we tend to conceptualize everything. But this sutta here, the way that it's phrased, is talking about this is not con uh, conceptualization of the Eightfold Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths. This is the exact evaluation of it as it's happening in this present moment. There it is. Look at it. This is Dukkha. This is, you know, this is Dukkha. Mm. This is the cause of Dukkha. Okay, so this is the way that we uh, uh, start to have those um, uh, Dhammanupasanas is by keeping track of really what's going on in this present moment. So a Dhamma way of doing it is, is that when, we, uh, when we're uh, seeing uh, the changes, when we see something right away, we can do that with wisdom. An example of that is, poof, the laptop dies. Maybe we spilled a Coke or a coffee on the keyboard and poof, it's gone. Anicca. If we are wise, we can say, I knew that that laptop would die. I knew someday it was, and I've got a plan. And we'll execute that plan, and everything's going to be all right. But some people who want Anicca, they just have the idea that I'm going to last forever, and so is the laptop. <laughs> and now coffee is on the laptop, and now they freak out. Oh, I lost my laptop. What am I going to do? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is a, a clear expression of it is can we see that dukkha in this present moment? Because if I can see that all oh, the laptop just died, that doesn't mean that I have to feel bad because the laptop died. I am not the laptop. Hmm. The laptop died. I'm still here. I'm okay. I didn't. Doesn't happen. But no, people don't think like that. When their laptop dies, they think that their that laptop is like who they are. That's their functionality. If I don't have my laptop, then who am I? <laughs> <laughs> or cell phone, or whatever else it is that we attach too closely, that's going to die. But yeah. knowing things die on a regular basis. Uh, on a, almost a, uh, we don't know what the schedule is, but there's a schedule, I guess, for everything. Everything dies. <laughs> and so how are we going to handle that? This is the entire quality that we're looking for, is, is that when things die, can you relinquish it? That's step 16 of Anapanasati, is let it go. That's what happens. And not only that, to let the laptop, when it dies, goes, uh, when the, when it <laughs> dies and goes, but that happens with every thought. Every thought arises, has a lifespan, uh, starts to churn, rots away, and is gone. And we let it go. We let it go. 
we relinquish it, throw it out. And so this is the uh, the fourth tetrad. I'm right, sure you're yeah. jumping with questions. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's interesting because you hear a lot of emphasis of the three characteristics, but uh, but the two of the sinyata and the tatata. Tatata. Um, you you don't. Um, I haven't been exposed to those concepts. Uh, before encountering uh, Buddhadasa. And so I know that, uh, for instance, he has an entire book dedicated to talking about sunyata. Um, I haven't read it yet. But then with the, with the other concept there, he really positions it as very important. And, um, and it, you know, it, it has a, a, a sort of an anti-dual quality to it. So he says, it may seem curious that all truth, anicca, dukkha, anatta, sunyata, end up with tathata. In Thai, tathata is translated just like this. Mm -hmm. That's the way things are. For thusness, or he also describes it as like thus, merely thus, thusness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For thusness is above and beyond all meanings of positive and negative, above all meanings of optimism and pessimism, beyond all dualities. This mm -hmm. is the end. The truth to be known in stage four is the secret of nature that says all things are only thus, just so. Yes, precisely. <laughs> He's waxing a little bit philosophical there. Yeah. Uh, and you did mention something that needs to be touched upon. And that is, is that the teachings of the Buddha are subtle, profound, and not easily understood by the masses. But many topics are also like that. An example would be mathematics. So you're like the second grader on the first day of school, say, subtraction. My <laughs> first grade teacher didn't tell me about subtraction. And that's exactly, Buddha Dasa, I mean, Buddha Dasa here is talking about Sunyata and Tatata, and my other teacher didn't tell me about Tatata. <laughs> so that's the first thing. The second point is, is that this word actually has such a profound meaning that this is what the Buddha called himself, the Tathagatha. The Tathagatha is the one who has gone to this present moment, the one who is here now. That's what the word means. The Tathagatha means the one who's present, the one who's here. All right. Now, in English, we have other words that have come to us from other places. Ram Das, for instance, wrote a book called Be Here Now. And for some reason, that Be Here Now, that really resonated with people the way the word ta-ta-ta doesn't resonate with us. But that's really what the word means. It means to be here now. Also, Eckhart Tolle had the, uh, the term this present moment, this one. That's what we're talking about. That thusness or that this present moment. This is what's happening. This is what we have. And this 
this moment is all we have. There is no past. There is no future. The past is gone. The future is not yet to be. And when it does be, it will be now when it arrives. Tomorrow never gets here. There's never a tomorrow on the calendar. Every day on the calendar is a today. A now. But you see, when we put things in reference to time, that's when we can also put reference into meaning. It has a meaning over time. But when we take the time uh, out of it from the past to the present and we take the meaning out of it, that's what we have left is sunyata and tatata. There is no meaning left and there is no time left. All we have is right now. Here we are. And if you want to be in another time, you have to move. You have to take some distance. Time and distance are the same thing. You have heard that about space-time, right? Same thing. Time and space are the same thing. And right here, we're not moving. Right now, we're not moving. Here we are, this present moment. Except that this present moment is constantly in flux, constantly in turmoil, constantly moving. Why? Because of the law of Idiyapapajayata, which I'm not sure is in the, in the book there. But the law of Idiyapapajayata is actually the law of causality. Physics is learning more and more about it. And the reason that physics has now become interested in it is because they ask the question, why is the speed of light the speed of light? Why? And now they're going into, well, you have to understand that things are done by causality, that those photons are operating under a force. And that force they're trying to understand. The problem with causality is, is that things happen so fast that there's no instruments that we can measure. I have seen one camera that they can do a billion frames a second. <laughs> that means one nanosecond is a frame. Wow. And one nanosecond is the time that it takes light to travel 11 inches. <laughs> and if you can get a camera going that fast, you can make all kinds of unusual understandings about the nature of light and how it, it works. But a billionth of a second and the time that it takes light to travel one, uh, excuse me, 11 inches is not nearly fast enough to watch the light in its own waveform. This running at, uh, you know, maybe three or four angstrom units of frequency, way beyond the gig, uh, you know, um, up in the gigahertz level. So why it, uh, the cameras are not going to catch what's really going on? We we do not have the t technology to measure causality. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that, you can see that, well, a camera has to have a, um, a charged couple device, um, which is the pixels. When the light comes in and hits the pixels, the pixels have to transmit an electrical signal down a wire at the, frame, at the speed of light down to the computer that's going to record this stuff. And you can see how slow all of that stuff is because we're talking about something that happens a billion times faster than the camera can wink. 
that even if you're taking three million or five million or a billion frames a second, you're still not anywhere near being able to see what's really going on. Wow. Okay, so this is the 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 understanding of causality that ca the things happen really really fast, but they're always happening right now. Mm -hmm. Things don't happen in the past; they happen always right now. This is the tatata. This is why that's so important that the Buddha actually called himself that. This is, in fact, this if there's anything, this is the essence of of the entire teaching of the Buddha. This is also why we look at Dukkha Naroda as something that happens immediately. As soon as you see the Dukkha, you come back into the Dukkha Naroda, hopefully in the next mind moment. Yeah. As opposed to the way that, that uh, is often practiced is, is that uh, the noting, for instance, to note Dukkha, to see Dukkha, uh, to observe the mind and to watch the mind, uh, a lot of meditation systems are like that. And certainly investigation is the key ingredient for Anapanasati, is to look at what you're doing. But the second key ingredient is, is to make a determination, is this wholesome and is it not? And if it's not wholesome, throw it out immediately. <laughs> Don't leave it there. Dukkha is not uh, permitted to stay just so that we can inspect it. Right, yeah. No, I think that it's a good transition point uh, going from the highest Dhamma now down to the first of the trainings. And uh, so we can take a look at it, uh, you know, with this first step, um, which says, while breathing in long, he fully comprehends. I breathe in long. While breathing out long, he fully comprehends. Wait, is that what it's? Breathing in yes. long, breathing out long, uh, he fully comprehends. I breathe out long. Mm -hmm. And then a few notes he has. He says, <clears throat> the first lesson is the contemplation of the long breath. We begin by studying just the long breath to find out its properties, qualities, influence, and flavor. We should sit and investigate only the long breath. Mm -hmm. As we learn the effects that the long breath has on the body, we discover the happiness and comfort that the long breath brings. Yeah, Having exactly. Yeah. Well, you yeah. don't read too much because you're, as, uh, let's, let's stop and comment for a second. Sure, yeah, yeah. The first thing that is put there is that um, a lot of people in Western Buddhism, they talk about watching the breath as if it were something passive. Right, yeah, I, but, I've heard that training again and again. You know, they say, don't interfere with the breath. Just let the breath be. Watch the breath. Uh, that seems to be a major, uh, you know, uh, a major element of teaching is that instruction. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I know where it came from. I know who teaches that. 
basically anyone who is in love with the Vasudhi Maga and from either Sri Lanka or Burma will say that. Mm, yeah. But not all. That in fact, just recently, I have been reading a Mahasi work that was translated into English in 1965. So it was some of the older stuff of, uh, of Mahasi. And uh, there, the terminology that is used is to fall upon, to seize, and what was the other word that he has? Uh, it has the quality of, of to seize, to fall upon, to grab. I've heard uh, this is, about it is like uh, rubbing against. Is that making the contact? Okay, all right. Well, why is it then, if we're talking about it in this way, that the way that Bhikkhu Das is talking about it, and the way that Mahasi has actually uh, written about it, why is it that the modern teachers are missing out on that? Okay. This is I an important try to, point. Try to promote the mind state of equanimity, right? Like, just watch it, and then, you know, just... So one, the idea being is that you be you you begin to de uh, go develop the awareness, you know, so and the attention. So you're watching as if it was happening separately, right? Mm -hmm. So like you see that the breath is something uh, sort of to be observed, something arising on its own. And then at the same time, you're developing a degree of equanimity. You just let it be, let it be. So that was always my impression. Okay. Um, the analogy that comes to me is like in movies, many times they'll have a scene of a runaway train <laughs> or a runaway car or an airplane that nobody's flying. Okay, now let's use the analogy of the runaway train in the sense that if the train can come to a stop, then that's equanimity. And if we can get the train to stop in the equanimity, then we can get off the train and it's not dangerous. But if we don't do anything to put brakes on that train, then that train is going to continue to roll on down that hill uh, into perhaps into doom. So this is the idea that they have is, is that let us have equanimity now. You can't have equanimity now. You're not ready for equanimity. You, can't, you cannot jump off that train safely until it stops. That's the problem that they've got. So now let's start putting the brakes on it. We've got to actually put some control in there. We're actually going to uh, make it a long, deep breath. How can an ordinary breath, if we're just watching and noting it, how is it actually going to become long? And so you can hear that um, uh, um, instruction that many new Mahasi students are telling us doesn't even fit with the old Mahasi method as well as it doesn't fit Anapanasati, it doesn't fit with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and it doesn't fit with actual, um, let us say, practice 
that leads one to that place. Mm -hmm. The next thing that you said was, is that by watching this long, deep breath and monitoring it, you can get to understand that joy will arise in the body. What Bhikkhu Buddha Das is actually talking about is, is that if we breathe well, that the body will become energized. That if we're not breathing well, it will become dull. That most meditators are meditating with a dull mind because they're just observing their breath rather than making it a long, deep breath. The next point is, is that this is actually, we're doing more than that. Because it's not just the breathing that's changed, it's the mind also. That you cannot change the breath without changing the mind. So we're actually learning to control both the mind and the breath in the body as a preliminary exercise to learn to control the feelings. If you cannot control the breath, you'll never be able to control the feelings. And they will always run your life. Right, yeah, and he goes on to say... Having learned how to make the breath long and keep it long, we are able to breathe long whenever we need to. Mm-hmm. We come to understand more deeply the secrets of the breath, body, and flesh body. Um, and so, yeah, in this training, you know, he seems to be saying that you, you deliberately breathe long mm-hmm. and that you discover the happiness and comfort uh, that this brings, and then later you're able to employ the long breath whenever you need to try to calm the body. Mm-hmm. And when do you do that? Whenever you remember to. Okay, this is where sati comes in, because that's one of the points that's in the sutta that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is expanding upon to the point that people get confused that basically what we're talking about is sati on that in breath on that long in breath sati on that long out breath to that understanding that noticing that involvement with the breath to make sure that it is a long breath in and making sure that it's a long breath out if we do that then what we're actually saying is is that that means that we're actually practicing sati not just to wake up when the mind has wandered away, but we're actually waking up on every in-breath and waking up on every out-breath. This is a profound part of the Anapanasati practice because we want to practice this sati. We want to keep practicing to be involved with the breathing to control it, to be there for it, to be in it, and to make sure that it's a long breath that can be understood as a long breath. And a short breath is to be understood as a, as a, um, uh, a long or a short in or out breath. So this is the way that, um, uh, that sati is d- developed right from the very beginning. First step of anapanasati is this long in-breath and long out breath, which means right from the beginning, we're actually intensifying sati. We keep bringing sati back over and over and over and over and over again to make it a habit so that it'll come on a very frequent basis throughout our day to wake us up, to not let us off into our mental world, but to keep coming back to this present moment. And so you can say that the anchor to this present moment 
is this present breath. This breath that we're having right now that I'm paying attention to actually in a way kind of locks me into this present moment. I cannot think about last year's breath or next month's breath. It's this one right here, right now. I got it. And by breathing in long and breathing out long, we begin to feel relaxed and comfortable. The body becomes energized, tingling alive, vibrantly alive because we're vibrantly vi uh, breathing in a way that makes us vibrantly alive. And Vika Buddhadasu is talking about this. Right. Yeah. I had, by the way, forgotten about that, that I didn't know that he was actually talking about this, but I talk about it to the students often. Thanks for reading this to me because it's been years since I've read this book, <laughs> 30 years or more. <laughs> we need to understand how to control this kaya according to our needs through the technique mm -hmm. regulating the breath. We can change our moods and emotions. For example, when we are angry, we can quickly let go of that anger by breathing long. Yes. That's, but you see, this is common knowledge. Whenever two people are, uh, let us say two kids are fighting at school and the teacher comes in and breaks it up and she'll tell them, take a deep breath. <laughs> Chill out, relax, take a long, deep breath. Exactly. Yeah. So, but we don't need the teacher when we're fighting with our own mind. <laughs> we can remember ourselves to take that long, deep breath. And you've recommended uh, counting to try to get the breath nice and long. Um, so I think you've recommended something like counting uh, one through five to the you know in. Right. And then maybe one to five out. Mm -hmm. a, that will to work. Try to extend it. And extend it so that uh, eventually I would say that the place that we would forget about counting would be at the point of eight, eight, four. Eight, eight on the in breath and eight on the out breath. And in fact, most people can't do eight on the in breath. They've already got a whole thing. And so they do six on the in breath and then wait two. Just yeah. to make sure they've got to eight, and then they'll count uh, eight on the out breath. And then the actual additional four will be uh, between the out breath and the in breath. And there's some good reasons for that uh, that we can discuss at a later time. But, it's called, uh, but if you look at it this way, that if you're breathing eight, eight, four, then that adds up to 20, which means that now. We're breathing about three breaths a minute. Now that's considerably slower than uh, the 20 breaths a minute that most people have. But when people get used to regulating their breath and working with their breath all day long, their breathing is uh, longer than most people. That mm -hmm. right. I, I observe that with my students, that I see that I'm generally breathing at a slower rate than they are. That if I'm going to match my breathing with the students, I'd actually start to breathe faster than I normally do, which is more work than I want to take in. Mm -hmm. But if you take a long, if you have long, deep breaths on, an, uh, not only is the body fully energized, but it's not so much work either. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I, so, you know, when I used to follow the, the instruction to follow the breath without interfering, generally I noticed that my, my breathing was very shallow and, mm -hmm. uh, and, very and the mind will wander away very easily. Yeah. And, and I'll even say that when I move to step two and I go into the short breath, my mind tends to wander more quickly. I've noticed that. Um, well, one, one of the things that I would say is that while the Buddha does talk about the short breath, the second one, and that there is a lot to be said about it, that, uh, that, that short breathing, um, let us say, is kind of specialized for specialized times and whatnot, that mostly the practice will be with the long breath. Yeah, it's interesting because, okay, so now the second uh, one says, while breathing in short, he fully comprehends, I breathe in short. While breathing out uh, short, he fully comprehends, I breathe out short. And then his note is, in training one, we observe and feel immediately that the long breath brings ease and comfort. In mm -hmm. training two, we observe and feel that the short breath leads to abnormality, that is uneasiness, agitation, and discomfort. Mm -hmm. The long breath is fine, the short breath is rough. When we're angry, the breath becomes short. When the breath mm -hmm. is short, the body is disturbed. And, and, yes. and it was, you know, reading that, it's curious because. Uh, he doesn't have much nice to say about the short breath. And so, you know, it makes you wonder if he has any use at all for, you know, beyond the experiment of seeing, yeah, when I breathe short, I tend to get agitated. It's rough. My mind is disturbed. My body, I feel effects on my body. So, right. The expression comes along huffing and puffing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Huffing and puffing. That would be a short breath. Also, runners, when they are uh, like if you um, let us say that you were going to climb the stairs of a high rise building. OK, are you climbing a hill or you're running up a hill or you're just running? What kind of breathing do you do there? Short, short breath, right? So the short breath then is actually kind of an emergency mode. Yeah. If you're out of breath, we have something very funny about people when they're out of breath, they want to stop being out of breath. They talk, they say what they mean. Uh, they use the language like uh, uh, to catch my breath. Yeah, so I use that to, mean that means that people don't like breathing short. No, breathing yeah, short. right. And back when a million years ago in my youth, I used to to run. Uh, like cross country. And mm -hmm. so I, you, what you just reminded me of is that at the beginning of my runs, I, I used to try to regulate the breath and, and to have very long controlled breathing. But eventually I get to the point where I'd start breathing faster. And at that point, you know, it, it was like a, a loss of, you know, like you're, you're losing it a bit. Once you begin panting, you can't, regulate the breath anymore it that's means you're because, 
Exhausted. Basically, what that means was is that um, even with the long breath, because you were doing so much activity of running, that the carbon dioxide was slowly building up in the blood, and that the way the brain regulates uh, breathing is with the pH level. So when the carbon dioxide gets high, that's car that's uh, carbonic acid. And so when that acidic level goes up, that's when it tr triggers that part of the brain to do that kind of breathing, that short breath, which is, <gasps> but we don't like that. We don't like that kind of breathing. Our mouth gets dry. Uh, and that most people, even if they're used to running, they're not used to that kind of activity of the lungs coming in and out and in and out and in and out. Uh, 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 and we don't like that and we want to stop it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the, the Buddha puts that kind of breath in there as to note that when we're breathing shallow or when we're breathing short, it does not have that uh, serenity or that ease that the long, deep breath does have. That people can become agitated with the shallow or a shorter breath because the, uh, that is an indication of the kind of breathing when the body, <clears throat> excuse me, the bloodstream has a lot of carbon dioxide in it. But with the long, slow breathing, that means that now we have the body fully oxygenated and the pH level is very. Uh, um, uh, close to the seven level, not a lot of acid in the blood. And this is um, uh, a state of homeostasis. Mm. Now, um, Achan um, uh, uh, Dhammavitu uh, will actually work with the short breath uh, in a, uh, let us say, an advanced class of meditation. They don't do that with the beginners. Mm. Because um, if you if you uh, give the, the beginners that exercise, the likelihood of them to think that, oh, I got to do this often will arise in their mind. Wow. No, yeah. this is this is an exercise to prove to yourself that the long breath is the way to go is by <laughs> experimenting with the short breath to show that this is a, an emergency mode breath, like when you're angry. Right. And so watch your breathing. If your breathing gets short, notice that and make it long again. And that will help to remove the uh, um, uh, the very pollutions that are in the blood and in the uh, body that is uh, the chemical um, makeup of anger. There's a lot of adrenaline, cortisol and those kinds of things in the blood. But when we breathe out, we can break those amino acids down and, uh, and breathe them out. And Vikram uh, Buddha Das is actually pointing at that in the, in the sutras, but I'm making a, a little bit more of it there. So, yes, right. back to the controlled in long breath is so satisfying. <sighs> Relaxing, comfort, ease. And, and so that, the way that uh, you're unpacking it and the way that Buddha Dasa is commenting on it, it just reinforces the idea, you know, some people, when they teach the Anapanasati trainings, they're like, okay, you got to go through in order, right? One through 16, 
you got to go in order. You got to follow through, right? And so this, uh, the way it's it's being unpacked here, seems to suggest that there's some movement, right, around. Uh, you you always start with a long breath, but then you you can move. Yes, that's true. Move that, right? Everything so you, is in flux. Everything is movement. Everything is constantly. Um, in a state of turmoil or, or flux. So slowing that down is actually relaxing. And you don't necessarily need to do, spend a whole lot of time on the second training every time you sit. No, not at all. Okay. Because, because you can see based upon what I've told you and what Bhikkhu Buddha Das has told you and your own experience is that that short breath is an agitating breath. Right. Yeah. Once we understand that, then we'll make sure that we're doing the long breath. I'm glad we've talked about this because this is a confusing point for many, many students. And I just kind of gloss over the second breath, but you're really bending me down on it. Wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is great. I love this. Um, and so then going into the third training, he trains himself Thoroughly experiencing all bodies, I breathe in. He trains himself. Thoroughly ex experiencing all bodies, I breathe out. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting. So here um, he, he reviews a bit. He says, you know, the breath is a body that is in a group, a collection, kaya. The mm -hmm. flesh is a body because it is a group or collection, kaya. Thus, there are two groups, two bodies, two kayas. One group is the breath that conditions the flesh body group. Mm -hmm. And you can observe the one group as it conditions and nurtures the other. See them arise together, fall together, coarsen mm -hmm. together, become fine together, grow comfortable together, grow uncomfortable together. That is what is meant by seeing all bodies. Know that there are mm -hmm. two kaya and train regulating one through the other. And so this training seems to be sort of, uh, it's like a combination of the first, the first and second. A consolidating. Um, and, and one way he, he recommends that is, is he says you can contemplate the flesh body is that which conditions the breath. So he says you can see how what you're feeling in the body impacts the breath. Mm -hmm. And then he says you can observe how the breath conditions the body. Well, that's the long breath right. versus the short breath. Right. Look at the body. I mean, the short breath conditions the body into being agitated or the agitation will create the short breath. They go hand in hand. That's what we're talking about. As right. opposed to the long breath and the relaxation go together. Right. And then observe the activity of conditioning that always exists simultaneously. Mm -hmm. They condition each other. Not right. necessarily causality, but rather conditionality. Mm -hmm. That things condition each other. 
An example of that is an air conditioner. Mm. An air conditioner doesn't create air. Right. But it right. just conditions it by changing its temperature and taking a few water molecules out, maybe some dust or whatever that. So it's conditioning the air, but it doesn't create the air. In this card also, the body of breath conditions the body of flesh. An example of that is, is that if you, if you keep breathing well, long, deep breaths over and over and over again, your hands will start to tingle. You can feel the tingling aliveness of it. That when the body, when the blood is really, really well oxygenated, then uh, these little capillaries and the cells and all of that says, hot diggity dog, we just won the uh, election or we just got uh, uh, the, uh, the prize or uh, the lottery. Now it's time to clean house. Okay. And so that's what that tingling alive is, is that the fact that now uh, throughout the body, uh, this is garbage collection day. <laughs> Normally, the, uh, the, uh, the garbage collection truck that's running around town is already full of garbage. But now we're conditioning uh, with the breathing. That means that now the garbage truck is dumping all of this garbage, and now the garbage truck is empty. And so everybody's saying, hot dog, the garbage truck is empty. Let's clean house. Let's throw that stuff out. So this is a way that you can see that the that the breath conditioner conditions the flesh body also. The whole body becomes vibrantly alive, tingly alive. You can feel it in the arms and the legs, and it just comes up <laughs> right up the body. In fact, this is what the um, uh, Hindus are calling kundalini, is that conditioning of the body with the breath. What they don't recognize is, is that it's the breathing that causes this. They think it's magic. Uh, but is the Kundalini, is that just PT sensations? Yes. Of PT? Okay. Well, yes, it's, let us say it's the physical manifestations of pity to yeah. where pity is really, um, a mental state, the mental state of, uh, the exhilaration of knowing that this is good or that I could do this. An example would be the winner. An example of it is the um, uh, the runner running uh, the Olympics, uh, the hundred yards dash, and he is well ahead of the whole crowd. And I'm looking at that last step he takes as he finishes the finish line, because he knows that he's won the race. If yeah. you'll notice, his posture changes. Because when he's running that race, he's running, and you can see what the arms are doing, but when he crosses that finish line, what touches that finish line? What hits that ribbon? Is his arms running in the air, or has he got his chest out? Mm. He hits that thing with his chest. That's right. it. <sighs> got it. Okay, that's pity. Yeah, and yeah. you can feel it right up the arm. This is why when people uh, uh, make a touchdown, that's why they spike the ball and throw their arms in the air, right? You can feel that energy all over yourself, okay? Especially if you're breathing well. And it, but it's interesting because some people really uh, think that the sensation of PT is what's important 
right? Like, oh, that's sound- because of that's because of the um, uh, misunderstandings within the Vasudhi Marga. The Vasudhi Marga uh, makes too much emphasis upon the physical sensations of the pity rather than recognizing the source of it, the causality of it, why it's there, and why we like it so much. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's a trip. You know, I think that people get hung up on it because it's a trip um, when it first... It's something when it, to win. It's a goal to meet. It's a... Um, uh, those who are goal-oriented, they think it's a goal to win. It's an, an, an achievement. Yeah. Rather than, um, uh, uh, let us say, <laughs> the, the paper bag that uh, the real prize came in. It's like the, you, you've seen dogs that way. They were more interested in the bag that the potato chips came in <laughs> than the potato <laughs> chips themselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. Or the packaging, right, the packaging of a product, uh, you know, uh, and the writing on it and the advertising on it uh, is more... (laughs) No, it's interesting. Yeah, no, there's a thinker named Slavoj Zizek, and he's talked about how the Coke can itself is what makes uh, the product so desirable. You know, the can it's really hard to make it look beautifully um, uh, yeah. inviting. That that red color is very attractive to many people. Yeah. And, and so, yes. And he concludes this one by saying it is possible to regulate, control, limit and manage the body and emotions by using the breath. We can make the body and emotions correct, useful beneficial through the breath if we train we can control the emotions well we already talked about that in the sense of the anger of taking a few deep breaths and and settle down and we can uh, uh, bring down the anger exactly right that oftentimes uh, very shallow breathing creates a lot of pollution that is not clean and that uh, um, it's almost like the tuning of a carburetor on an automobile. When we, and that, uh, uh, but instead of regulating the fuel like uh, an accelerator on an automobile engine, the human body regulates its energy through the breathing or through the air. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine that there could be an automobile um, fuel injection system or carburation or something like that that actually operated with the uh, fuel supply just being there, but that the power that was put out and the revolutions that were uh, the engine was putting out was being determined by how much air we put into it. Because yeah. that's exactly the way that the body works. Mm-hmm. And so when we're not breathing well, then the body will become polluted which means then the body will not just be polluted with the pollutions of the body, that's polluted with the chemicals that are associated with the feelings. Mm. Mm. And so depressed people then will be not breathing well. Yeah. We could go on and on and on like this, but I think that we've about put in two hours now. And so let's just finish now. I've got another caller waiting. 
and I will, uh, uh, we will continue. I really like this. This is really good. You're really putting the my feet to the fire, or maybe it's my brain <laughs> <laughs> to bring all of these uh, things up by re reading the book. Thank you for this. This is great. Oh, yeah, I'm loving, but, uh, I'm loving it. I appreciate it very much. Thank you again so for your time and your thoughts. Thank all right. You. Well, we'll continue on in the next couple of days and. Wonderful. Okay, bye okay, now. Alan. See you later. Bye-bye.